If you have your bulletin today and you find that sermon outline page, you'll see that we began a series last week entitled uh, A Courageous Faith. Um, and uh, we all struggle with having the courage that it takes to really live out our faith the way that, that we really know it probably should be lived out. Because there's a lot of things that cause fear and uncertainty, and we have a tendency to, uh, to hide on God sometimes. I love the little story of a little boy. Uh, that uh, I found this week. There was a boss of a big company that needed to call one of his employees about an urgent problem with one of their main computers. And so he dialed the employee's home phone number and was greeted with a child's whispered, hello. Well, feeling put out at the inconvenience of having to even talk to the youngster, the boss asked, is your daddy home? Yes, whispered the small voice. May I talk with him, the man asked. And to the surprise of the boss, the small voice whispered, No. Wanting to talk with an adult, the boss asked, Is your mommy there? Yes, came back the answer. May I talk with her? Again, the small voice whispered, No. Uh, knowing that it was not likely that a young child would be left home alone, the boss decided that he would just leave a message with the person who should be there watching over the child. Is there anyone else there besides you? The boss asked the child. Yes, whispered the child, a policeman. Wondering what the cop would be doing at his employee's home, the boss asked, may I speak with the policeman? No, he's busy, whispered the child. Busy doing what? asked the boss. Talking to mommy and daddy and the firemen, came the whispered answer. Well, growing concerned, even more worried as he heard what sounded like a helicopter through the earpiece on the phone, the boss asked, what is that noise? A helicopter, answered the whispering voice. What is going on there? Asked the boss, now very alarmed. In an odd, whispered voice, the child answered, the search team just landed the helicopter. Alarmed, concerned, and more than just a little frustrated, the boss then asked, what are they searching for? And still whispering, the young voice replied, me. Okay. No. <laughs> That's the hardest thing I'll do today with the whispering thing in there. <laughs> Stretching my speaking capabilities there. Um, but we all know what that's like, right? When God all invites us to come and do something for him, to live out the life that we really read in, in scripture that he wants us to, to live out, what we find is that oftentimes uh, we have a temptation to hide from that, to say, you know what, I'm going to sit this one out, Lord, that seems a little scary, that seems a little risky for me, I just, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hide and sit this one out. And so we learned last week that will-seeking people, the people who really want to follow after God and, and do what God wants them to do, that will-seeking people quickly find themselves being courage-needing people. And so we have to ask the question then, where does the courage that we need come from? Where are we going to find um, that courage to really live out that life that God calls us to live? And I think the story that as we continue our look in the book of Joshua, in Joshua chapter 2 today, I think you're going to find a wonderful example in the life of a woman by the name of Rahab. And Rahab's story is one that as I thought and listened and processed this story this week, uh, it's one that I just appreciate the faith and the courage, the courageous faith that she had that led her to be and to do um, the hard thing that was before her. 
to really be a woman who steps from one place to another. And it took a lot of courage to do that for her. And so we're going to look at her story here this morning. If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to open to Joshua chapter 2, verse 1. And we're going to read that chapter. If you have your Bible app, feel free to get that out and do that. Or they will be on the screen here for you as well. I want to set the context of our story before we begin to explore some of the, the places that we see that her courageous faith really flowed out of in her life. But let's begin the story to set the context for us. Last week we saw that, that Joshua had been commissioned as the leader of Israel now that Moses, their leader for four decades, is dead and gone. And Joshua has been commissioned to take his place last week three or four different times throughout chapter one. He is encouraged to be strong and courageous. And then we meet in the next chapter a woman who has a faith that you wouldn't expect her to have. She is not an Israelite woman. In fact, she lives in the, in the, amongst the peoples that the Israelites are about to try to evict from the promised land. And so she really doesn't have any background with the Hebrew people. She doesn't really have anything that you would look at and say, well, well, that's a woman that I would expect to have a strong faith in God. And yet what we're going to see as we walk through this story here today is that as she begins to know certain things and learn certain things about the nature of who God is and, and the history of what God has done, that her faith grows. But she comes to a crossroads that is different than lots of people see what God has done and they hear what God has done and they come to that crossroads, that moment when you have to step across the line and say, I'm either going to believe this and embrace this truth or I'm going to step back. I'm going to hide from the truth that I know about God. And so that's why I love Rahab's story because in so many ways, I think she helps us to see what it looks like to step across that line, to not be afraid to follow her faith forward. So Joshua chapter two, verse one says this. Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. He says this to them, go look over the land, he said, especially Jericho and especially Jericho because Jericho is the first city they are going to come to, right? I've got a map here for you. Go to the map and we'll come back to this verse here in a second. But this map uh, that Abel Shittin over there is where the Israelite people are camped, right? On on the eastern side of the uh, Jordan River. So they're camped over there, an army of, of people of, of some people think a million, a million and a half people, a large group of people who have made their way from Egypt um, after wandering in the wilderness for 40 years and made their way to that land. And they're going to cross uh, here in a few weeks, the Jordan River. And the first city they're going to come to is Jericho. So Jericho knows quite well, if you have a, a, a foreign nation of a million plus people who moves right across the border, right across the river from you, they're on high alert. They're quite concerned about what's about to happen in their backyard. And so let's go back to verse 1 then, if we can. Um, It says this, And so they went and they entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. Now, what's up with that, okay? Like, like, what are these Israelite spies doing? This isn't a vacation. They're supposed to be working. And and really the context of that time and those places is that um, a brothel is the same as an inn, and an inn is the same as a brothel in that culture. That was just a very common thing. And so really what they're doing is they go to Rahab's place, uh, to the brothel that she probably ran, um, 
what they are doing is they're basically just doing what every, any visitor would do. You're looking for a place to stay and you come to a new town. They didn't have Motel 6s or Ramadas or Drurians or whatever you may be looking for, or higher class places if you're, if you're, that, if you're looking for those, um, but, uh, or Priceline to get those good deals on those nice places. Um, but they, they just go to where a normal visitor would go. And, and so they, they end up staying here in a place where no one would bat an eye if a visitor came into town and made their way to Rahab's place, either just for the inn or for the service of the brothel. And so if you skip down then to verse 2, uh, skip a couple slides there, verse 2 and 3, it says, the king of Jericho was told, look, uh, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So someone notices the spies coming in, informs the king. And so the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab, bring out the men who came to you and entered your house because they have come to spy out the whole lands. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And so you begin to see that she's not acting like a typical Jerichoite, all right? She's got something going on here. So she's hidden them. And she said, yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they had come from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gates, they left. I don't know, how quick, how which, I don't know which way they went, so go up after them. You may catch up with them. In parentheses, in verse 6 and 7, but she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax that she had laid out on the roof. So she hid the spies and covered their tracks to help them escape. And so the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. So Rahab does this odd thing in sheltering and protecting these spies. And you have to ask the question, why would she do that? Uh, she's doing what she's doing would certainly be considered an act of treason. If the king of Jericho discovered what she was doing, uh, she would be punished severely, if not executed, for her treason uh, against her people. So what's she doing? What's motivating her to do what she's doing? Well, I think the Bible would say this about Rahab's actions. That for Rahab, hiding the spies was a courageous act of an unhidden faith. And so as we think about this whole idea of us being tempted to hide in our faith, I think Rahab is a good example for us as she hid those spies, what she was really doing was revealing the faith that she had in the God of Israel. It was her way of saying, I believe in your God. I don't know him well. I'm hoping that you can help me with that, spies. I've heard about him. I've seen what he's done. I see the, I see the winds where they're blowing here and what your God is able to do. And so no longer am I going to hide that faith. Her faith is courageously stepping forward, being willing to take a risk that may even cost her her own life if she was caught. And so hiding those spies was a courageous act of an unhidden faith. And so based upon that truth, I think we could all learn to be more like Rahab because there's always that temptation that we wrestle with to hide our faith in moments where it's either embarrassing or uncomfortable or we're going to be the odd person out. Um, and it's easier to just hide our faith. And yet Rahab demonstrates for us an example of a person who has this budding and growing faith and this courageous faith that's being born in, inside of her is, is, is an example even to the Israelite people. Later on when Jesus lives, um, you're going to meet, Jesus is going to meet many people from Israel, but every once in a while, Jesus would meet someone who was outside of Israel's faith, outside of the Jewish faith. And the Bible does a pretty interesting thing whenever Jesus meets them. Oftentimes, he sees greater faith 
and people who have not grown up in and don't, aren't familiar with all the intricacies of the Jewish faith. And a number of times, Jesus commends a Gentile person, man or woman, for their great faith that he hasn't seen in Israel. And I think it's interesting that the Bible, when it's talking to us about what an unhidden faith looks like, yeah, there's examples. Joshua is certainly an example of that. But I think it's significant that it goes to the Canaanite people, the very people that are about to be judged with the coming of the, uh, God's promised people of Israel uh, for their sins and for their, uh, we'll talk later about their child sacrifice and all the wicked things they have been doing for centuries. Um, but God picks out one of those folks to say, you know what, this is what genuine unhidden faith looks like. And so if we're going to grow, I love what the New Testament does with Rahab. Two or three different times, the New Testament grabs a hold of Rahab's story to highlight for you and for me the importance and the beauty of her faith. Listen to what Hebrews chapter 11, verse 31 says. It says, by faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Again, her faith in hiding those spies was her way of saying, I'm not going to hide my faith in, your, in this God. I will do what is in front of me to do. I will protect his people. And in doing so, she is commended for centuries following as a woman of great and incredible faith. The book of James also latches onto that and says a similar thing. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. So Rahab is lifted up for us as an example of what it looks like to have an, an unhidden faith. And so I want us to learn from her today. And so where did Rahab's faith come from? I think her faith was born out of some things that she was hearing and seeing around her. And so I would say this, that Rahab's faith was born, number one, out of a fearful wonder of God. That Rahab's faith was born out of a fearful wonder of who God was. Now, Rahab did not know God well. Rahab had not grown up in a place where she heard the stories of God. She certainly had not grown up with the Hebrew people hearing of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the things that God had promised. But what Rahab did know was what God had done recently. She was able to listen, and she heard the stories of, of what God had done. And I want to read you the text of what she goes on to say in verse 11, where she comes to the spies and says, look, I've, I've been listening, and I hear about what your God has been doing and who he is, who he seems to be, and I, I want to follow after him. I want to join his side. And so the verse 8 of our text says this, and so before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, and note that little phrase I highlighted there, I know. Where does a genuine faith come from, a courageous faith come from? It comes from what you know of God. And not what you can answer on a trivia question, but really of what you know, right? What do I know of God? I know, and this is what she says, I know that the Lord has given you this land. In other words, she can see, you know, yeah, we're firmly entrenched here, but I don't know all your promises, but I can see what's coming here, that God has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. And so sometimes we think, well, it's not really cool to think of God as being someone to be feared. And I don't want us to take that in an unhealthy way, but the Bible repeatedly says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of a lot of good things. And we don't fear God because he's 
Well, yes, we do. We fear God because a part of him is, is, is worthy of fearing. There is something other of God. There is something that ought to make us uncomfortable before God because God is other and God is holy and God is perfect and, and we are not. We are common and we are sinful and we are unholy. And so there ought to be something uncomfortable inside of us that says, you know what, before that God, I ought to be a little uncomfortable. And that's what Rahab models for us as she, as she presents herself with fear. But it's not just an unhealthy fear that I want to run away from him. It is a fear that says, I want to know him. I'm drawn to him because of his mighty ways. It goes on in verse 10 to say this. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt. And so she's been hearing and, and paying attention to these stories of, of how God acts on behalf of his people. Yes, he is awesome and he is other, but he's also benevolent and takes care of his people. All right? And so we heard all those things. And what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, if you go back and read the stories, they've already met some of the, the local tribes, the local territories, and they have destroyed them. Um, as a testimony of what was coming forward. Verse 11 goes on to say, when we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. For, and this is what she knows, right? For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. And that's a profound statement because if you were a person who lived in that time period, your God was generally a God of a local territory, right? You were the God of the Canaanites, or you were the God of the Egyptians, or you were the God of the Moabites. Pick your nation. Every different nation had their own God. It was not a common thing for anyone's God to be over all. And so when we went to war, it was a battle of your local God versus my local God. And, and whoever happens to win that day, well, maybe his territory expands a little bit, but no one would ever think that he's God over all. And yet, as Rahab has listened to the stories of a God who defeats Egypt, bigger than all the Egyptian gods, and those were pretty powerful gods because the Egyptian people were the most powerful people anybody knew in that culture. And yet, the God of the Hebrews had overthrown them. Move into the, uh, uh, the Amorites, the local territories there, the people that, that they had their own gods, and yet God had been bigger than them. How he'd parted the sea, his power over nature, his power over other gods, his power over all these things. And Rahab is just doing the math in her head. He's not just a local God. He's a God who seems to be more powerful than any local God, any, any local uh, or, or um, created thing, seas and all the things and the, and the water, the blood and all the plagues in Egypt and all the things he had done there. And so she's doing the math in her head thinking, you know what, he's different and I know that his God, their God, is different than any God I've ever seen. And, and she's attracted to that. And so where did this courageous faith come out of? It came from this fearful wonder of who God was. And so sometimes we, we lack courage because we tend to get worshiping gods that are, are minor gods with a small g, not instead of a large g. And we get worshiping things that really can't deliver for us. And that's what Rahab is up against. Her whole life, she's worshiped these little G gods that now seem to pale in comparison to the God that she is meeting, that the Hebrews are bringing with them. And so we tend to do that too. Why do we tend to lack courage in our faith? Oftentimes it's because we are really not acting out what we know about the God of Scripture, that the God that we have been told about. 
About three years ago, there was a funny thing that happened on Twitter. I thought it was funny. I saw it on Facebook. Somebody shared it and reminded me of it, of a dead raccoon. All right? Have you ever seen this story? It was a Twitter feed for back in, I forget the dates. It was way back in 2015. Um, but I love the story in Toronto that there was a dead raccoon. Put the first picture up there, if you would, please. Um, this is a dead raccoon that someone found, that Jason Wagger found the morning. And so he, tech, he tweeted at 311 Toronto, and I guess that's the animal control people in Toronto, and said, we got a dead raccoon here, all right? And so I guess that's the way you report a dead raccoon. And he said, there's a dead raccoon on the sidewalk outside of the, the address that you see there, all right? The next one goes on to say this. Uh, thank you for letting us know the city gets the message. Uh, this has been reported a short while ago. Animal service has been notified, okay? And so um, they're on it, all right? They've got it on their list of things to do is to come to pick up the dead raccoon. All right, but as things tend to go, things in the world of, of, of services not always happen fast. And so the next one uh, goes on and says, well, thank you. And, and you can already begin to see that someone's left a note and a rose for the dead raccoon, all right? Which is something worthy of every da- dead raccoon that ought to be given that, I guess. Excellent, thanks. Poor fellow had a rough night. Okay, it goes on. And now all of a sudden that begins to grow, right? Somebody has found a picture of a raccoon. And in honor of the raccoon who has passed away, uh, but they also remind it's after 3 p.m. And this started in the morning, it seems like. After 3 p.m., and I guess animal services hasn't been by. Uh, so please have your staff pick up the raccoon again. And again, notes begin, are beginning to pile up in honor of their beloved raccoon, right? It goes on. Um, don't quite know what to say about this sidewalk discovery, except that it's really brought people together. People in the neighborhood are beginning to rally around dead raccoon who's been laying on the street all these, all these moments. Can I the next one? Uh, sleep well, my sweet prince. Here's a tribute on Twitter. People loved you and remembered you. Hashtag dead raccoon uh, T.O. I guess it's Toronto. So I didn't look that up. I should have Googled that to see if that's still an active, if it's honoring others. Uh, Norm Kelly comes back. The sidewalk memorial is growing. Uh, next one. Uh, residents are being asked, I love this one, residents are being asked to keep their green bins open tonight in honor of dead raccoons. So leave your trash can open overnight in honor of the local raccoon has died. Uh, again, he's still there. It's 820. Come on, animal services. Next one goes on. Uh, 12 hours and nothing. He's still there. But I love that box. It's basically a little box up there that says animal services won't get him unless we collect enough money for him to come get it. So leave your money here. So I guess they're trying to bilk the thing for a little, little cash. The next one. Uh, candlelight vigil now being held for dead raccoon. Uh, so again, you get pictures. People are leaving notes and messages for the dead raccoon, which has got to be stinking a little bit after being out there all day long. And next one. Uh, the body is now being taken away finally, finally late in the evening time. Okay, But that's not the end of the story because it goes on to say this. Uh, thank you, Toronto, for picking me up. He now has his own Twitter feed, uh, the dead raccoon does. And it goes on with this one. Uh, people are still lighting candles for me. Thank you, people. All right, next one. Um, and I love this one. And not to forget the dead raccoon, but we made a chalk drawing with the, uh, with the cones so we remember dead raccoon. All right, now you think of that. That's, that's somebody spent all day long documenting that, right? Is there nothing better to do in the world? And all of you agree that I can see you're looking at your face like, what a waste of time. Like, couldn't we think of something better to do than honor the dead raccoon who's laying in the street? Now, I, I dare you. I want someone to do this this week. There's dead animals all around us, right? We live in Miller County. There's dead animals all over the place. Somebody needs to do this this week, all right? So that's my challenge to you. But I would say that to say, simply say this. It's easy to look back at that and say, you know what? What a silly waste of time, all that fuss over a dead raccoon. And you're right. I agree with you. That probably is a silly waste of time in a lot of ways. But I wonder, when we go back to our Rahab story, and Rahab is comparing all the local gods that she has grown or known her whole life 
comparing them to the God that she is now meeting that is coming with the Hebrew people. And I think her response is a little bit of that. All my life I've known these gods, but none of them can do what this God can do. And they seem rather small and trivial. And they don't seem worth living for anymore. She had spent so much of her life and all of a sudden all of these small gods were disappointing their people and they were coming to a place where they were losing courage because their gods kept losing battles. And it's a hard day when the gods that you trust in, and again, you may not be worshiping their gods, but we all have things that we lean into, we lean on to deliver us, to provide security and meaning for our life other than God. Our careers, our families, relationships, popularity, all kinds of things that we lean into. When those things begin to not deliver for us, we lose courage. We get discouraged. And like Rahab, we need to have our minds captured once again with a holy wonder, with a fearful wonder of the God that Rahab was meeting. I love what the New Testament says a lot about this, that... Um, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul would write this in verse 14. If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. In other words, if there's not a greater God to live for, doesn't matter. Just live your life any way you want. But indeed, in verse 20, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. Paul had seen him and met him, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And Paul would go on to say this in verse 54, not on the screen, but listen closely. It says, when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality... Then the, what that, then the saying that is written will come true, death itself has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. In other words, when you walk in that kind of faith, that kind of victory, you don't reach that place where all of a sudden you think, you know what, it's just all disappointment. You don't lose hearts. I love what Rick actually said when he said that the strongest evidence of faith is a refusal to live an intimidated life. And that's what Rahab is going to demonstrate because she meets, at least initially, what she knows and she's learned of this fearful, wonderful God of the Hebrews. And so what's she going to do with that? That's the second thing I want you to see with me this morning. Um, we're going to skip down to the second point here. That Rahab's faith was born out of a fearful wonder of God, which led to this, a fearless allegiance to God. And so it was born out of this uh, meeting him, but she had to make a decision. Okay, from this point forward, who am I going to live for? I can't do both. I I'm in a point where I got to choose their God or I got to choose my God's. And so she comes to a place of deciding because he is such a fearful and wonderful God, I'm going to change jerseys. I'm going to change teams. I'm going to leave everything I've known and I'm going to embrace the God of the Hebrews. I'm going to create, uh, lean into a fearless allegiance. And, and so why do I put the word fearless? Because to change teams was a scary thing for her. It could have cost her everything. And watch as she processes the truth that she's been playing around in her head, beginning in verse 12. It says this, Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and my mother, my brothers, my sisters, and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. Our lives for your lives, he says, the man assured her. If you don't tell what we are doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. And so she let them down by a rope through the window 
for the house that she lived in was part of the city wall. And so, again, they're on the outside wall. She lowers them down. They're able to escape. And she says, go to the hills so the pursuers will not find you. Hide yourself for, their, for three days until they return and then go on your way. And they did that. And so stop and think about what she's saying here. She's not just making a spiritual move. Say, okay, I'm not going to worship these gods. I'm going to worship this god. That had, had, had um, consequences with it. That had uh, tangible things in her life, right, that made a difference. She is putting herself in a position of great risk and da danger. She decides that she just can't stay neutral or just choose the losing side. And so she decides for God's team at great personal risk for herself. Again, we already said this is a treasonous act, right? If, if we wouldn't appreciate it if someone did that in, from our country to someone else's country. You don't appreciate that. And they wouldn't have as well. She could have, her life was at risk. If she was caught in the act, act of lowering down the spies out of her window, they would have quickly um, arrested her, or probably executed her. If they saw that red cord from her window, thinking, what's the red cord for, Rahab? That seems, uh, why are you putting that there? And if she had to go and if she was caught doing that, that would have been a very dangerous thing for her to do. And so we face this too. It's one thing to say, yes, I believe in the God of the Bible, but to really live for him is going to bring you to places in your life when you're going to have to take a risk like Rahab did. And it may be in small things, it may be in big things, but I love what 1 Corinthians 16, 13 encourages us with when it says, be on guard, stand firm in the faith, be courageous, and be strong. And so I think the New Testament grabs a hold of Joshua's story when it uses those, those words. And that leads us to a third thing, that Rahab's faith was born out of a fearful wonder of God, which led to a fearless allegiance to God, which produced a fearless witness for God. A fearless witness for God. I just want you to know, I don't know if you noticed it or not, but in verse 12, it's one thing for Rahab to say, you know what, I'm going to stay here in my house. I would like to be saved. I want to be with you guys, right? I'm changing teams here. But imagine what is implied then if she's going to get her mother, her father, her siblings, all of their families, what is implied in that? She's got to go tell them, okay, I've done something drastic here, right? I've lied to our king. I've put myself in danger here. But when the Israelites come to Jericho, you need to come and you need to be in my house or you're going to die. That's a happy message, right? It's a scary message. It's a dangerous message, right? What does it take? One of her relatives to throw her under the bus and she's gone. It was scary. It was an awkward thing. But just think about what she's doing there. Think about what she is doing in that moment. Look at, listen to verse 17 and 18 as the text continues. Now the men had said to her, this oath you made us swear will not be binding on us unless when we enter the land you have tied this red scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And unless you have brought your father and mother, your brothers and all your family into your house. It goes on to say this. If any of them go outside your house into the street, their blood will be on their own heads. We will not be responsible. As for those who are in the house with you, their blood will be on our head, uh, head and if hand is laid on them. But I, if you tell what we are doing, we will be released from the oath that you made us swear. In verse 21, they agree, or she agrees, let it be as you say. And so she sent them away and they departed and she tied the scarlet cord in the window where it hung apparently until the Israelites show up a few chapters later. When they left, they went into the hills and stayed there three days until the pursuers had searched all along the road and returned without finding them. And then the two of them started back. They went down out of the hills, forded the river, and came to Joshua, son of Nun, and told him everything that had happened to them. 
And they said to Joshua, the Lord has surely given the whole land into our hands. All the people are melting in fear because of us. And so as we finish this, I just want to draw your mind to some things. In the time and the days that followed from the time they left, at least a week or more probably before they actually arrived there, and you follow the departure of the spies, Rahab had to live in this tension. My loyalties are with the God of the Hebrews, but I live in the land of Jericho. And I'm sure she lived in a fear of being caught. I'm sure there was a sense of insecurity about that. But what continued to allow her to be courageous? I believe in the God of the Hebrews, the one who's helped them through Egypt, who has delivered them, who has provided for them. I believe in that God. She had changed her allegiance to God's side. And she was concerned, though not just for herself, but she was concerned for her family, that they would escape the destruction that was coming as well. And at some point, she had to sit down with them and tell them what was going on in her life and why and what they needed to do to respond to that. And that was a very risky thing to do. It would have been very callous, though, or cowardly, if she would have kept that information to herself, right? If you were to look at it and say, hey, I know a message that I could tell my family that if they're here, that when the Israelites come and destroy the city, if they're in my house, they're safe. What would you call a person who knows that information and doesn't tell her family? You would call that person either cowardly or just cold-hearted, that they wouldn't deliver a message that could help save them. In fact, I do believe, I think as you go through the story, that, that God really has a heart for all of these people, all of those that are here, and yet, to know a way of escape and salvation and not offer it to those that she loved would have been a sad tragedy. And so her love and her concern for her family fed a greater courage. And so where does courage come from? It comes from your faith, but it also comes from your love. Because when your faith is firmly in the God of heaven and you love people, you can't help but connect those two things. That I know something that can not only help your life, but ultimately, in reality, save your life spiritually. So her love and her concern for her family was greater than the fear that she had about risking her life. And so courage and love go hand in hand. And so there's one last question I just want you to think with me here about this morning. What if this spy mission that Joshua sends these two spies out for, what if this spy mission was, much, was as much about salvation as gathering information? Because really, Joshua had been to the promised land before. He kind of knew it. He'd been there 40 years before. He kind of scattered it out with the other spies. But what if this whole mission wasn't as much about, hey, let's go find out what Jericho looks like now, as it is, there's a woman who lives in those city gates who believes in God, who's ready to turn and, and respond to who God is and be, join, her, join his people. There's a woman who's ready to change sides. But she's not going to do that unless there's someone there to help her get there. And that's where the spies are entered into this story, where really it becomes as much about the salvation of a woman and her family as it does about the information that they gathered about Jericho. And so we've been asking you over the last few weeks, uh, each week, to pray those four things that Jesus told us to pray about. And we've encouraged the last of those four things is to pray for workers for the harvest, right? That's what Jesus commanded us to pray for, because that can be a scary prayer, Right? When you have to begin to engage people and talk to people about God and about where we stand with God if we're not in Christ. So where do we find the courage to pray that prayer and more importantly to be the answer to that prayer? I think this story illustrates why that should be an urgent request in your life. Because Joshua was coming and Rahab knew that. 
Jericho's days were numbered. And now was the time to tell those that Rahab knew, even if that meant risking her own well-being and security. Everyone in Jericho had heard the same reports. It wasn't just Rahab who heard the reports. Everyone in that city had heard the same reports. And I really believe that God would have saved the whole city if they would have had the courage to repent like Rahab did. But yet God sends reports of himself to the world in many, many ways, just like he did then. And we live in a world where God still does that, that the rumors of who God is and what God has done through Christ are out there. And God is looking for people like Rahab who have heard and are willing to respond in a courageous, obedient faith. But sometimes they need someone like the spies to walk into their life and offer them that saving response. And note that saving faith, this is a side note, is always an obedient faith. It's, an, it's a faith that, that responds, doesn't just do nothing. So don't let the fact that God was looking for Rahab, and it's, we haven't really talked about Rahab's lifestyle, her life. Um, don't let that, though, be the thing that, because we meet Rahab's all the time, people that you would look at and think, well, they're probably not interested in God because look at how they live. They apparently live far from God, so maybe they're not interested in God. But don't let... That be the thinking in your minds. Because Rahab probably would have been one of the least likely people that you would line him up and say, well, probably the, the lady who runs the brothel, she's the best candidate to be a God follower. And yet, who was the best candidate to be a God follower in that town? It was the lady who ran the brothel. And so she changed and she repented. And, and God was going to use Rahab just like he's going to use some of the Rahabs that may be around us that we pray for and we share with and we love and we invite. Um, God has a plan for her just like he has for them and for us if you're here today. And so what happens to Rahab? It's a cool story. It's a sermon in and of itself. I won't preach it today, but I will summarize it in this way. That Rahab ends up in a few chapters marrying a man from Israel by the name of Salmon. And Rahab and her husband end up having children. And one of them, one of the sons, is a man by the name of Boaz. And in the book of Matthew chapter 1, it gives the outline of Jesus and his genealogy. And note what it says that Rahab is mentioned there too. That Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. So who was Boaz's folks? Apparently it's Rahab, right? And so when you look back, remember a few chapters, a few months ago, we preached the book of Ruth. And there was this really kind man named Boaz to a foreigner by the name of Ruth. You think, why would he be so kind to a foreigner? Because not everybody in Israel was kind to foreigners. Why would he be kind to a foreigner? It's because his mom, his family, used to be a woman who was a prostitute in Jericho before she became a follower of God in Israel. And so maybe the compassion that he had towards Ruth came honestly into his life. It goes on to say that Boaz was the father of Obed, and whose mother was Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, Jesse the father of King David. If you keep reading through that text, eventually David's lineage leads to Jesus. And so I love the fact that God would choose the least likely person to be the one he most uses. Because I think sometimes our spiritual pride thinks, well, I'm holy and I'm good, and so God should use me. But so oftentimes God goes to the one who was most humble, most dil uh, diligently seeking after him, a person like Rahab. And so I want to encourage you here this morning to have a courageous faith like Rahab did. She knew who God was, and she wasn't so afraid of allowing that truth to shape her life. 
wherever it led her. And for her, her situation, it meant I changed sides from Jericho to the Hebrew people at great risk to myself. And so I don't know what your line is or what they are in your life, but we all face them. Moments when we have to decide, okay, I, I, I say I know God, am I going to cross the line? Am I going to be known as one who loves him, follows him, and, and serves Christ? Or am I going to hide? I think God would use Rahab's story to say that, that the hiding needs to go out of our life. Would you pray with me, please?